We thank you, Father, for this opportunity that your grace has provided us today for us to gather and to express to you through these songs our gratefulness for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, I pray that we would continue through the course of this service to offer to you and our attention to your holy word, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're mindful, Lord, in your scripture that you are a jealous God, that there is none who can stand alongside you and none who can compare to you and because you're perfect and holy and just and true and that the, and there is none lord jesus and all the universe who can compare it is right father for you to guard your throne so that you and only you lord jesus are proclaimed in all your glories and your truth I pray, Lord, this morning, as we have offered to you the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge your name, that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to hear and to do your word, so that we may not neglect to do good and to share what we have, recognizing, even from your scriptures, that such sacrifices are pleasing to you. Lord, through the proclamation of your word, I pray that you would stir our hearts to confess Christ as Lord all the more boldly, all the more consistently in the course of our life and in our changing lifestyles. I pray, Lord, that you would draw our attention to your holy word and the beauties that are laid out so carefully through redemptive history that we might appreciate the contours of your revelation. And I pray, Lord, that as these things work their way into our souls, that you would draw us together in fellowship, Lord, love for one another and service of your great name, and the proclamation of these words beyond this place, that your glory might be echoed through your people, declaring and applying your word each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a gift and opportunity we have today to behold the Holy Scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Psalm 78. This morning we'll begin a five-part series covering this psalm. There's some length to it, 72 verses, and there's certainly depth as well, as we see the author Asaph drawing from the rich history of God's dealings with his people to teach us a number of lessons, the people of God a number of things, with respect to God's ways and his works and proper worship accordingly. The aim of this morning's message is that we may audit ourselves, to examine ourselves, to look within as a people and to apply the spiritual standards or the scriptural standards that we see in Psalm 78 and see if there might be room for repair and repentance in our own lives. The scriptures are, are a, a framework, if you will. They are a standard for self-examination to look closely and to see where we stack up according to how God would have us live. This, of course, is the exercise of a true believer. If there are those who fellowship among us or those in the hearing of this message who do not confess faith in Christ as of yet, the Scripture is also a standard for you. It is also a standard that begs repentance, but it is a standard of perfect righteousness that you must know you cannot live up to. And only Christ can live up to the picture of perfection that God requires of all His creatures. Yet in the work of Christ, in His perfection and His righteousness imputed to you, and in his death, which satisfied the judgment that your falling short deserved, deserves, we have salvation. And this salvation sets us free to live in accordance with his great truth by sanctification 
with increasing measure. And so in that way, Psalm 78 is helpful as well. The title of this morning's message is Corporate Examination. How the people of God might assess themselves as a people to see areas where they might grow. Would you stand with me out of reverence and awe for the Holy Scriptures? And let us consider the first 16 verses of Psalm 78 together. This psalm comes to us under the title of A Masculine of Asaph. And here we have verse 1 of the Holy Word of God. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might, and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast whose spirit was not faithful to God Verse 9, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud. And at night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 78 is classified by some scholars as a, quote, historical psalm. This isn't to say that there, any, that there are any psalms that are not history or written at a specific and uh, particular time or have reference to specific events in history. The difference between the rest of the psalms and, and psalms like Psalm 78, however, is that there is much history recorded in the psalm itself. We began to hear these words coming to us in verses 9 and virtually to the end of the psalm itself is a record of God's dealings with His people. And we'll see in the course of our study why these words are recorded. Psalm 78 records at length the consequences, I submit to you this morning, of ignoring Psalm 77. Turn back a page with me, if you would, and let's consider Psalm 77, just one or two verses. Verses 11 and 12. Then I said, or I will remember, the psalmist writes, Asaph again, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You may recall a title of our message last a time we were in the Psalms was Unseen Footprints, where the psalmist sees the work of God in the footprints, the evidence of his work as he recalls his great deeds through history. 
And this allows him to repair his soul when he, is, when he is in the throes of trial at the time of his writing. In other words, there's a prescription for those who feel overwhelmed by cares or anything really in this life. And part of that prescription involves looking to what God has done in history and letting your perspective change, the joy flood back into your soul, your faith be built, and to receive what is absolutely needful if you should lapse in faith and if you were left to your own devices too long, lapse in faithfulness. Well, the question then comes to our mind perhaps, what would happen if we didn't do that? If in the course of the throes of life, in the difficulty of trial, in the hardships that we might face, we forget the great works of the Lord. Well, Psalm 78 lays out the consequences of this kind of negligence. Asaph describes a situation in Psalm 78, 11, notice the corresponding verse in this text, the following, says, They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 12, In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. But the people, he is saying, had forgotten these things, and the consequences were indeed devastating. The repeated refrain throughout the history of the people of God and through the course of Psalm 78, you see this in several verses. For instance, verse 17, Yet they still sinned more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Again, in verse 32, In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. You see, his wonders stood as a testimony to encourage, to strengthen their soul. But and in forgetting his wonders, refusing or, la- or lacking the ability or the discipline to look carefully upon the work of God in their own history, they continually fell into sin. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Finally, a fifth time in Verse 56 or fourth here, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. And so interspersed through the psalm, we have this refrain, they sinned still more against Him, or at least that idea in so many words. These references divide the psalm, Psalm 78, into five sections. And these sections do culminate with hope. They culminate in hope found in the Messiah, prefigured in the call of David. From the tribe of Judah, God would raise up one who would be the anointed shepherd for His people. And therefore, in the context of this psalm, the intensity and tenacity of man's sin as it's recorded only deepens the yearning of history, if you will, and the faithful in the course of that history for their Savior. The anointed one will come and He will set things right again. Notice in verse 68, But He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which He loves. Again, that language of choosing, verse 70, He chose David, His servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. And so we see hope coming in at the end of Psalm 78. And this audit, this corporate examination, this uh, looking closely upon the state of the people, and finding it falling short, and then calling their attention to hope in their Messiah. That's the basic structure of our psalm today. Today we will consider a little more deeply the first 16 verses, that first section. Let us consider these words under this theme or heading. 
a spiritually literate society will take seriously a few things. Perhaps you could say more simply a prudent society will take seriously what the psalmist expounds in these first 16 verses. And in these verses, let us consider first absolute wisdom. A spiritually literate society, a prudent or healthy society, will take seriously absolute wisdom, the absolute truth of God. Secondly, they will consider, a godly people, you could say, will consider seriously a generational mandate, a call to proclaim the works of God to the next generation. Thirdly, a spiritually literate society will take seriously the rebellion of man. The rebellion of man, his tendency toward his own sin, the fact that he is lost, dead in his trespasses and sins, as the New Testament tells us. A society that is healthy and prudent will take seriously this truth. And finally, a society that is spiritually literate, that is prudent and healthy, will take seriously the wonders of God. Absolute wisdom, generational mandate, the rebellion of man, and the wonders of God. Do we take these things seriously as a people this day? Let us continue ask, continually ask ourselves that question through the course of this text. And in so doing, we, we will have a good corporate examination, if you will. First of all, absolute wisdom. Consider again verses 1 through 4. Asaph records, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. In our day and age today, I've heard that there are postmodern philosophers, uh, if I'm recalling two of them correctly, Derrida and Foucault, and these were new and improved quote-unquote thinkers who have come along in our really God-hating age and submitted ideas to the landscape of philosophy like this. Well, really, if you take any set of facts, there are innumerable ways to interpret them. Perhaps you've heard somebody say something like this about the Bible. You may say, well, the Bible says X in opposition or uh, taking issue with something that they say, and they may say, well, that's your interpretation. What does that phrase mean to convey? When someone says, well, that's your interpretation, or yes, but you can interpret the Bible many different ways. It is a phrase that is usually deployed, it's usually used to dismiss the absolute wisdom of the Word of God. It's a phrase that usually implies there's no real way of knowing the truth, even if it exists somewhere deep within the confusing phrases that mark the territory from Genesis to Revelation. Even if it is there, there's no real way to know, which is a sort of spiritual agnosticism. And this is popular even among Christian thinkers today, or I shouldn't say as much Christian thinkers are Christian thinking or lack thereof. People find themselves in this quagmire of confusion, lost, without any frame of reference, not knowing if there is truth or if there is truth, can it be known? This is the kind of blind groping in the dark, uh, spiritually speaking, or in the course of ideas and philosophy that characterizes much of our society today. Hence, 
To the degree that this is true, we are not a spiritually literate society. We are neither prudent nor healthy as a people. Why? Because a society that is prudent and healthy and is aware of the beauty and the foundational truth of Scripture and the very nature of God's Word will take seriously absolute wisdom. The admonition is give ear, listen up, lean in closely. I have something important to say. In the ancient world, the sage was one, the wise person or the one who had, by virtue of his study, his discipline, and his age and experience, had accumulated for himself a wealth of riches to share with the next generation. And so in the spirit of this godly sage, or ancient one, or one who had had plenty of experience, Asaph speaks in the first person saying, give ear. Lend me your ear. I am about to share I am about to share something that is well worth taking note. Something that will affect your entire life. Something that if you get correctly can solve innumerable problems for you. Incline your ear is the parallel phrase. Listen in. In our phrase or vernacular today you might say grab a pen. Do you have a pencil handy? If you hear that on the phone you're about to get an important piece of information. Grab a pen, write this down, listen closely, give an ear, incline your ear to the words of my mouth. Listen, pay attention, lean forward. If you hear nothing else I say, do not forget this. This is the way that Psalm 78 is introduced to us. Why? Because the author knows that If there is any hope for a people to stand strong, they must take seriously the fact that there is a God, He has revealed Himself, His word is absolute, and by that word you will be judged. You will either thrive or you will be punished according to the standard of God's spoken truth that does not change. Societies change, philosophy changes, great thinkers change, influential works change, the literary landscape of you know, books that are popular change, television shows change. Things change all the time in this sinful world. Winds and doctrines and truths, so quote unquote, ideas, whims, they blow across the landscape of apostasy and heresy and philosophy back and forth. But Solomon was wise when he said, there really is nothing new under the sun. Man is tempted to be remain confused today just as he was back then. And although people promise new improved ideas and we can get caught in this morass of confusion, there is a voice that speaks unchangeably and loud and clear through that cacophony and that din and that confusing noise. And it is the voice of the Word of God preaching to us from thousands of years ago, absolute wisdom. Are you listening? Do you incline your ear to the Word of God? Do you take the time to understand the sometimes difficult phrases and genres and accounts and stories and theological principles and systematic uh, ideas that are all through the pages of Scripture? The calling for us today is to give ear, to listen in, to take seriously this absolute wisdom of the Lord. There are two phrases that characterize this absolute wisdom that may be curious to us. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Teaching, that's fairly self-explanatory. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. 
Words of my mouth are easy enough to understand. I will open my mouth in a parable. We're you know, relatively familiar with what a parable is, but there's another phrase. I will utter dark sayings from of old. What are these dark sayings, also described as teaching the words of the mouth of the godly one, the prophet, as it were, or this parable, these dark sayings from of old? In uh, ancient truths are in view here, ancient truths that would be more extensively grasped by the aging among us, yet highly valued for the young. I've heard it said this way, that the Bible is really not an easy book. The Bible is difficult, it's challenging for many reasons. For one, it's convicting. It holds us accountable to a standard that we fall immeasurably short of. And in that way, it's a difficult book to read. The Bible is lengthy. I mean, just for obvious reasons, it's a hard book to grasp and to understand. It's immeasurable in its depth, but the scope of how it records its truth is singular. It's profound indeed. Forty-plus authors, 66 books over thousands of years. Complicated ideas and simple, profound truths grace the pages with every turn. There is a disciplined a discipline that is required to understand the Bible on its own terms. The Bible is full of, as it were, dark sayings. Sayings that are obscure to us on first glance and require a little digging. The Holy Spirit to shed light upon them to illuminate. As we think about this, think about the value of ancient truth that is grasped by those who spent much of their time. Remember, we referenced the sage or the wise one who has gone over the scriptures and carefully sought to understand them in context and so on and so forth. This is the kind of valued understanding that we should look for when we need help understanding these scriptures. For most today, they probably study the Bible according to their impressions. You know, what does it mean to me? And this idea really just is a way of superimposing our own interpretation on what is here. But to realize the value and depth of, this, of these scriptures, according to their own terms, it requires a submission, a discipline, a careful study, high degree of responsibility, and helps along the way. And Psalm 78 is helpful, therefore, in this regard. The value of ancient truths grasped by the aging for the young today, again, is something that is a foreign concept if you ever heard one. We live in a day and age where people seek perpetual youth and seem to want to perpetually defer responsibility. Oh, to stay young and to afford not to care seems to be the quest for the, that uh, characterizes the American dream. So the most, most important and influential individuals in our society in virtually every area of life uh, portray and display a value set that is entirely different than Psalm 78. Again, as much as this is true, we are a very spiritually illiterate society. A prudent and healthy people take seriously the dark sayings, the difficult truths, the ancient wisdom, the absolute certainty of the Word of God that may escape us at first glance, but on further digging yields the riches of wisdom and fruit that can absolutely structure and buttress, reinforce, and define our lives.
Thirdly, under absolute wisdom, there is a means whereby this revelation continues. We see this expounded in verse 4. It's thematic through the entire psalm. We will not hide them, speaking of these dark sayings, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The sayings of old, the glorious deeds, the wonders of God, these are meant to be explained, to be proclaimed, to be delivered to the next generation, for them to be taught, for them to be understood, as the young people are taught in the ways of the Lord. In the book of Isaiah, this duty to share the truth of God's Word and the foundational principles that never change to make sense of our confusing world, as contrasted with popular quote-unquote wisdom of the day, is spoken of in this way. Isaiah 8.16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching. Testimony and teaching are referenced as well in our text. Among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There is no light upon a people who turn away from the Lord and and thus turn to the equivalent of necromancers and mediums who chirp and mutter. Think of self-help programs on television, everyone from Dr. Phil to Oprah, chirping and muttering. Do they speak for us on behalf of God? Are the commentators on the, local, on the on network news channels, are they the great prophets that can make sense of our changing world? Should we inquire of those who chirp and mutter to give us a sound understanding and teaching and testimony in our day and age? Absolutely not. There is no dawn for, these, uh, for those who rely on those, the voices of humanistic experts or otherwise, the mystics of new age thought, whoever it might be. There is no dawn, there is no light, there is no illumination to be found here. To the teaching and to the testimony, go back to the ancient past, to the Word of God that never changes. This is the mark of a healthy, prudent, and spiritually literate society. And so we see this call to value absolute wisdom. Second major point today, a prudent and healthy people or society takes seriously a generational mandate. This builds on verse 4, but he continues, Asaph does, to give us this incredibly sober, sobering call and important responsibility to share with the next generation the Word of God. Verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. 
there is a, general ma- a generational mandate that attends the revelation of God's Word. This book right here, the Bible itself, if it were only words on a page, sits passively on the shelf. May I submit to you that this, wo- this book as recorded words is not the sufficient means that God has ordained in order for His glory to be expounded and to be proclaimed. We are called to take this book and to proclaim it. Romans 10 tells us, verse 14, I believe, that how shall they hear unless someone preaches these words and takes these words and proclaims them, shares them, lives them, displays them, features them in their life and speech. So it is in godly families. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1, or Deuteronomy 6. The Lord had revealed Himself in works and wonders to the ancient generation in the time that Deuteronomy 6 was written to the prior generation, but He had commanded, He had ordained a way for these life-altering and perspective-changing circumstances to continue to the next generation. And we see instructions in this regard in Deuteronomy 6.4. First, we have this confessional statement. The nature and character of Yahweh Himself, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And notice this injunction, this command in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and, you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We continue, of course, in this passage to realize that obedience in this regard comes with promises. Verse 12, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear Him. Him you shall serve. Uh, the Lord your God, you shall fear Him, you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Later on in the book, and especially in chapters 28 and thereabouts, the curses are expounded for denying or for breaking, for being disobedient with respect to these commands. But also the great blessings of the flourishing of this healthy and spiritually literate society are given if man would but obey this commandment to teach the next generation. This general mandate, or this generational mandate, comes with content to share. What do we share to the next generation? What ought we diligently teach the children? Psalm 78.5 and Deuteronomy 6 echo one another. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. This testimony of the Lord, this record of His truth and righteousness, This framework for understanding all of life, this philosophy of history, this record of God's acts in time, this testimony, this law, He has established and appointed for the purpose of displaying His truth so that those who read, who hear, who experience and understand might share it with the next generation. In the Scriptures, we could consider this a philosophy of education. 
Education is the training and instruction, according to Scripture, of the next generation in the works, the words, the deeds, the demands, and the wonders of our God. Lest you think this is merely an Old Testament instruction, Ephesians chapter 6 echoes these truths. As Paul instructs in the application portion of his epistle, he reminds us of the fifth command, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Notice this parenthesis. This is the first commandment with a promise. And there is a sense in which the fifth commandment is unique. It is the first commandment, that is to say, with a promise. In other words, there is great reward and there are, there are great consequences that hinge upon obedience to instructing the children in the ways of the Lord. And therefore, children are, in verse 2, to honor their father and mother. That is, it, uh, and, the, and the promise is expanded in verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Further instructions, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here again, we have these instructions for the education of the young ones of the next generation. How are we doing? How are you doing, parents of children in this room? How are you doing, adults who have any influence whatsoever with younger individuals or younger, at least spiritually speaking, in your life? Are you faithful and have you been diligent to take seriously and with great discipline and study the calling to share with the next generation the great works of the Lord, the truth of His Word? A spiritually literate society will take this seriously. A prudent and healthy church will take seriously the call to educate our children in the Word of God. There is a continuity, not only content, the Word of God, but also continuity, the continuance of the faith hinges upon this effort that the next generation might know them. You'll be happy to know that there are promises in Scripture that your children, generally speaking, will walk with the Lord and will not fall away. But these promises come attached to a heavy responsibility to be the instructor of those children in the ways of the Lord. And may I add by application, not to let that role be co-opted by a false god. And this is the problem in our society today with respect to this point the generational mandate. The instructions of how to interpret life have been co-opted. The role to instruct the young people on how to interpret life and everything in it has been co-opted by a wicked system, by a false god, by a secular philosophy that says God did not make us in the first place, neither we are, are we therefore in, made in the image of God. That life is a bunch of random molecules jostled around just so and a random soup of interesting but ultimately meaningless facts and bits of protoplasm. And in the, in the uh, assumption of these truths that form the basis of the philosophy that governs education in our schools these days, public schools, government education, and so on, schools of higher learning, the mind, may I submit to you, of the next generation is, generally speaking, more often than not, co-opted by these false ideas. 
the very first and primary affirmation that the people of God were told to teach to their children was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And he has intervened in history from creation through redemption to reveal himself to you. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but my kids are. Uh, as much as I'm embarrassed to say, Star Wars isn't on in our house a whole lot. But my kid, I have to come up with reasons why, right? Dad, why won't you let us watch Star Wars again? And what usually what I say is, Star Wars doesn't tell the truth about the Lord and his world. That's my go-to phrase. You know, these, this movie doesn't tell the truth about God and his world. Now, you know, watching an occasional movie for educational or for a benefit to explain to them by contrast, this is what the Bible says or whatever, you know, no condemnation. Godly parents can pick and choose these certain things. You can navigate them. You can teach your children accordingly. But consider this application point. If your children are educated in an environment that does not tell the truth to them about God and his world day in, day out, hours and hours and hours each day with prominent influential individuals attending their way all the way through their most formative years of education. Do not be surprised if in the end they have very little foundational understanding of the word of God as a comprehensive whole and very weak and anemic faith at best if not wholly apostate and thrown like seed to the wind of a generation who has not taken seriously this call of nurture and instruction in the Word of God. So that is my charge to you today. A spiritually literate society, a prudent and healthy people, will take seriously the generational mandate of explaining that the Word of God is absolutely central when your kids rise, when they lay down, when they come in, when they go, and so on and so forth. Now the consequences of this are huge. If we, do, if we are faithful and obedient to this charge, verse 7 tells us, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep His commandments. Notice future, past, and present are all in view. So that they, why do we teach our children in this way? So that they should set their hope in God. That is, that their idea of the future, their hopes, their dreams, their orientation toward tomorrow will be governed by the Lord. But not just this. And not forget the works of God. That would be what He's accomplished in the past. So that as they think about history and what's come before, and that which preceded this point on the linear plan of God's providence, that they would remember the things that He has done, future and past. And finally, that they would keep His commandments, that they would live in the present with a goal towards glorifying the Lord, walking in His ways, learning from their parents the joyful privilege of manifesting the truth of God by their changing life as they come to Christ and then begin to conform to His image. Moving right along at a pace you'd probably prefer was quicker, let's get to point number three, the rebellion of man. A spiritually literate society will take seriously the rebellion of man. Of course, these things go hand in hand, but much of the chapter is calling the attention of an obtuse people who think they're just fine, thank you, 
to the reality of their dilapidated spiritual condition by pointing out what God had done, has done and also pointing out the consequences of forgetting it. We see this in verses 8 through 11, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. By example, we see verse 9, the Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. A prudent society or people take seriously the rebellion of man. The example here is this wilderness generation. If you go to Deuteronomy 1, 34-2-1, we won't cover it this morning. But this is the account where the people of God had gone through the wilderness and they were on the threshold of Canaan. And really that journey was not that long. We think of it as a 40-year journey. But that was a judgment journey. It wasn't a pragmatic journey. It should have only taken them a, you know, a short amount of time, matter of weeks, let's say. And so here they are at the threshold of Canaan. But they've complained. They've been a rebellious generation. Their heart has not been steadfast. They've questioned the Lord and His godly leadership, His anointed one that He has placed over them, like Moses and his leadership as Judge Aaron, his leadership as high priest. And these, the fathers of the next generation, uh, stubborn and rebellious, are languishing in the wilderness. And the message is, too bad, you can't come into the promises. Turn around, make a U-turn, head back into the wilderness, and see how you like that beating sun for another, another 40 years. Well, the people were not too happy at this prospect. So what did they do? Well, perhaps this is the reference here, the Ephraimites, and this is a reference uh, likely to all the people of God, but they armed their bow. Sometimes Ephraim refers to the people of God, sometimes the people of God in rebellion. Armed with the bow, they turned back on the day of battle. At the time when they heard this news that they had to head back into the wilderness, they said, you know what, let's just take our chances. We'll fight off. Fine then, we will fight. Uh, you know, the armies and the peoples inside of the promised land. But because they didn't have the blessing of God, and because this was in itself was another act of rebellion, they turned back on the day of battle and were unsuccessful. This reference to the rebellion of the Ephraimites is contrasted to the tribe of Judah later in the text. In verse 68, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. If you put those two together, it's a poetic way of drawing a distinction between the two. In other words, whereas the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back in the day of battle, God chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. There would be a salvation plan that would come out of this mess. But in the meantime, as an example to us, the Ephraimites and the rebels in the wilderness, this generation who is not steadfast is giving us a good example of the consequences of not taking seriously absolute wisdom, the generational mandate, and loving and lauding the wonders of God. This was the wilderness generation, characterized by their stubborn behavior, their rebelliousness, their hearts that were not steadfast, and their spirits that were not faithful. They rejected, they disregarded, they did not value the rod and staff of God's guidance through the wilderness. They despised these things and they paid the consequence. The essential deficit, what was missing in their lives, 
is listed in verses 10 and 11. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Four references there, covenant, law, works, and wonders. This was the essential deficit. It goes on to say, In sight of their fathers he performed these wonders, verse 12, in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. And Zoan was a prominent city in northern Egypt, um, as I recall. Might have my geography a little fuzzy. Suffice it to say, it was a place where God likely used as God likely used this place as a stage to display His wonders. It was important and central to the government and to the all the construction and so on of Egypt at the time. So, on the fields of Zoan, where sphinxes you know darkened the sky, where pyramids were created to celebrate the glory of the pharaohs, where this ancient and influential civilization rose in among the, alongside the luxurious Nile with all of its riches. God performed wonders there. And you remember what they were. He smote the river and turned it to blood. He smote the livestock with all kinds of things, including hail and insects. He darkened the sky. He trounced the very pantheon of Egyptian gods with display after display of his glorious wonders. But the people in the wilderness forgot these things. In fact, there were times when they wanted to worship idols themselves or to turn and go back to Egypt. I missed the food. I had leeks and onions. We should go back. 430 years of hard slavery with back torn open under the whips and the abuse of these tyrants? Insane. Why were they so mentally disturbed, if you will? Why were they so spiritually out of sorts? Because they did not keep God's covenant. They didn't keep his law. They forgot his works and they forgot his wonders. We can just as easily do the same thing. I had a difficult week this week and I'm sure I'm not alone. No one in this room is a stranger to really hard times. What happens during the course of a trial is we get so short-sighted pretty soon all we can see is our pain. And we risk forgetting the wonders and the works of God in these moments. His work in saving our souls from hell and from the judgment our sin deserved. His work in rescuing His people through the ages and preserving the seed of the Messiah. In demonstrating His glories over wicked tyrants and empires of the day. When influential lords and rulers of this world come crashing down under the authoritative hammer of Almighty God. When they seek to throw off the chains of His morality, testimony, and law, He merely laughs in derision in the heavens and throws their society into a state of chaos. And we ought to remember these things. So what Asaph did in Psalm 77 is set his soul aright and caused him to look beyond his pain. It turned him from the selfishness of pity to the worship and praise of the Lord who had intervened in the course of His servants all through history. Will He not intervene again? Has He not intervened in your life, saint? If He has delivered you from the gaping jaws of hell by the shed blood of His only Son, incarnate Christ, Son of David, from the tribe of Judah, coming in His perfect time to take upon your sin and mine? Hallelujah. These are the wonders of the Lord. 
that reset the framework of our thinking. And they are the mark of a spiritually healthy people and society. And in closing this morning, we look to more of them in verses 13 through 16. A few examples. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. Of course, the description of crossing that Red Sea when the wind blew all night and the Lord uh, created two heaps of water. And this miraculous display of His glorious power over creation itself and to maintain the entire universe, He created a way of deliverance and escape for His people from the hand of Pharaoh's chariots. He made these waters stand like a heap and His people experienced this miraculous deliverance. Another example, verse 14, In the daytime He led them with a cloud and all night with a fiery light. This was glorious guidance. This was more than just a lantern or a practical way to see where you would go, although it was that. This was the evidence of the Lord's presence among them. The term is Shekinah or presence, abiding uh, fellowship of God Almighty with His people was visible to them in this manifest form. As long as that glory cloud, as it were, was with them, it was proof positive even to their tangible sight that God Himself was with His people. This cloud came and rested over the tabernacle, the place which pictured the satisfied sacrifices, the shed blood by substitute that purchased and earned the way for man to dwell in the presence of God. Mount Zion itself becomes this picture. Jesus fulfills it. And this is the glorious guidance that was provided to people through the wilderness. And they were to remember that as long as that cloud was guiding them by day and that pillar of fire by night, it meant Yahweh, the creator of this world and the savior of their souls, was there, present and real with them. Turn to Him. Seek His favor. And finally, their sovereign provision. He split rocks in the wilderness, verse 15, and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. Sovereign provision. One final passage to turn to this morning, 1 Corinthians 10. In this passage alone, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul references all three of these occasions, miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea, glorious guidance through day and night for his people in the wilderness, and sovereign provision in their wandering. He references all three and ties them to their fulfillment in Christ. And also explains to us the importance of this record in the Old Testament that we have been considering today. 1 Corinthians 10.1 I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So we have miraculous deliverance pictured passing through the sea. We have glorious guidance pictured as baptism in cloud. All ate of the same spiritual food, verse 3. All drank of the same spiritual drink, verse 4. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. When the waters of Meribah gushed forth from that rock, it was a picture of satisfaction, of provision, coming out of Deadness and nothingness and hopelessness, streams of living water flow. 
in the death and hopelessness and hard rock condition of our own hearts in sin, by a touch of Almighty God, streams of water flow and transform the landscape of our heart. Christ was this rock. Christ was this picture of supply in the wilderness. Christ was this picture of cloud and baptism. And even today in the ordinances that we celebrate, we can tie our attention to these very truths. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must put on Christ, put Christ to the, or we must not, excuse me, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. He goes on to describe the cup of blessing in verse 16. He says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are one body, for we uh, who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He goes on this way. But what he has done in this passage is to tie the Lord's Supper, the means which God provides to us, to this need that we have ourselves to remember the works, the wonders of God, to not forget, to take seriously the absolute wisdom of the Holy Scriptures, to take seriously our generational mandate take seriously the rebellion of mankind, and to take seriously the wonders of our God. And we have even less excuse, if it could be said, than the original readers of Psalm 78, the original singers of that song. Why? Because Christ has come. David, on his throne, represented great hope for the people at the writing of Psalm 78. But that's nothing, just a prefiguring, a shadow of what was to come represented in Christ for us our hope, our Savior, our King of kings, and our Lord of lords. So when we gather on a Sunday to participate in the Lord's table as we did last week, to worship Him in song as we did this morning, and to open His scriptures as we do each Lord's Day, remember that these things are necessary, necessary to hold our attention, to call us back, and to keep us grounded. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your provision for us in the wilderness of this intermediate state. We look forward to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We look forward to the city whose builder and maker is God, to have an eternal, perfect, consummate communion, fellowship with you, and the new heavens and new earth one day. But right now, Lord, we recognize that there are hardships in between. But you have not left us alone. You have left us with more than enough. You've left us with your word. You've left us with our Savior. You have left us with the Holy Spirit and his abiding presence. You have left us, Lord Jesus, with an embarrassment of riches. May we value them and may we employ them, Lord Jesus, in our day-to-day -day walk 
So we are not stubborn and rebellious like the generations before, but indeed cling to you and in so doing, find ourselves, Lord, loving and treasuring your truth, your gospel more and more each with each day you so graciously give. Help us in this effort, Lord, and if there are any who fellowship here or who gather here and do not yet fellowship because they have not known Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would meet you as their rock in the wilderness and let streams of living water, Lord Jesus, be appreciated and partaken of in their heart and soul as they realize that their sin was paid for in your shed blood. And upon Calvary, Lord Jesus, their sins were washed away. And may they burst forth with new life. We thank you, God, for all of the promises of Scripture that are yes and amen to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us grace and strength and wisdom to apply your word as we move out from this place this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.